This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME1. Hi, this is Ibarianax, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. I've been on a tear as of late, scheduling and conducting interviews for release in the coming weeks, and it's really been exciting. Photography is changing. The, the market for photography is changing. The equipment is changing all at, at this blistering pace. But what doesn't change is the creativity and the imagination that makes photography so special for me. Not only am I seeing it with the guests that I'm interviewing for, for the show, but I'm also seeing it with the fans of the Candid Frame who are contributing images to the Candid Frame Flickr group. I really love spending time in there, seeing some amazing imagery from people who just love making photographs. With the YouTube videos that I'm releasing each Thursday, I have a great opportunity to showcase some of those images and to talk about different topics and ideas revolving around photography. So if you haven't checked it out, just visit the Candid Frame group on Flickr and subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. I'll have, I'll have links for both on the show notes as well as on the blog. Now, one of the things that I like about seeing new work is discovering new ways of seeing. I especially love it when I find a photographer who shoots in a particular genre of photography and completely makes it his or her own. Today's guest, Zio Moro, is doing just that with his work documenting historical sites, including the home of our 26th president, Theodore Roosevelt. Now, architectural photography is, is a great opportunity for photographers to play with line, shape, and lighting, and to capture the vision of another artist, such as an architect or an interior designer. Their images are used to express visually the thought and detail that went into a, a site's construction or design. But Ciamaro's images take it a step further and result in images that are infused with his own personal aesthetic for color, light, shadow, and, and so much more. As soon as I saw his photographs, I knew that I was seeing something really special. So I encourage you to take a look at his photographs as soon as you can, because I think you, it will make you rethink what's possible with this kind of photography. So please enjoy my conversation with Sio Moro. All right. Well, uh, Sio, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thank you for reaching out and uh, turning me on to, to your work. Uh, it's early in the year for me, so I'm really excited about having uh, photographers like you to, to launch uh, the eighth year of the show. So so welcome. Well, thank you very much. I've been listening to your show for several years now. Uh, I really love the new app, by the way. I think it's just really awesome. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I, I think it's just great. So I'm really excited and just thrilled to be speaking with you, and I hope to be able to meet you in person next time you're in New York City. Yeah, yeah, that's part of the plan. All right. You know, I was reading up on you, and man, you have been all over the place. 
I try to be, you know. <laughs> uh, you you've been had a lot of sort of diverse experiences growing up with your father and your uncle being in the arts. Yeah. Uh, your involvement in, in in music as as a performer and as a representative, a legal representative for uh, up and coming artists. But it's your images that, that that we're here to talk about. And I have to tell you that one of the uh, galleries that I looked at was your work for the uh, the home of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Oh yes. And I got to tell you, those those images were just amazing. Oh, thanks very much. I really appreciate that. Amazing. They are so they are so beautiful. They're. I'll let you describe, you know, what the what the job was about and and mm-hmm. what was involved in it. But, you know, what struck me about those photographs is that they're, as you describe them, artistic takes on on a living space. And oftentimes, when people think of architectural photographs, there's something very sort of sterile about the images. Mm-hmm. You get to see the space. You get to see all the design elements they, they've put into it. And you look at it from the perspective of the of the architect. But what I really loved about your, your photographs with the way that you use light, the way you use color, the way you use composition, is that you gave me a sense of what it felt like to live in that space and to live in that room. And largely it's because of, of those choices that I just that I just mentioned. Tell us more about that project and how did this particular approach to making those images come about? Well, first I have to get over all the goosebumps you just gave me because <laughs> uh, you totally get what that project was about. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was getting that across. You know, I, um, I don't take for granted that I'm always going to get it right. But that emotional component you know, the feel, the mood, the atmosphere is exactly what I wanted to focus on. Because, you know, when you look at a lot of, uh, or at least when I've seen a lot of photos of interiors or architectural uh, places, like in, like in a magazine or something, they tend to be very high key photographs, super sharp, and they tend to look the same, you know, at least in my opinion. And I wanted to avoid that. I wanted to avoid having photos that looked like they were an architectural digest. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but also photos that look like they're real estate photos. And so I, I was trying to get, you know, this otherness, if I can use that term. But by way of background, so folks know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to go real basic here because as I get older, I realize that lots of people don't know about some of the things that I consider to be obvious reference points. So this was a, um, a commission that I received from the National Park Service. National Park Service. One of their parks is located on Long Island in New York at a place called Oyster Bay. It's a small town on the North Shore. And there in Oyster Bay is a 23-room mansion called Sagamore Hill. Sagamore Hill was the home of one of our presidents, uh, probably one of our most iconic presidents, a fellow named Theodore Roosevelt, sometimes known as Teddy Roosevelt, after whom the teddy bear was named. And uh, this house was not only his family's abode, but it was also used uh, as a place to do business. It was actually referred to as the Summer White House. So some very uh, significant historical events and meetings took place there with dignitaries and heads of state. The National Park Service, what they wanted to do was to have me come in and photograph the interiors and create a collection for them that they can use on their website. They can use in exhibits. They can basically use to uh, draw more attention to the location from the public, especially nowadays, since so many people are going online and with uh, between, you know, uh, the Internet and digital photography, images have become even more um, 
you know, omnipresent than ever before. So lots of people might even not tour a place or visit a location, but actually experience it vicariously by going online. So they're aware of this at the National Park Service. This particular house uh, was actually going a, a renovation. It was just interior things, things like updating the security system, uh, the lighting, the plumbing, things like that that required actually pulling out all the furnishings, all the mementos. And for anyone who's never been to this place, uh, you know, it is open to the public. You, you, can, you can visit it, or at least you will once it's, it's, it's opened again. Right now, it's still under this renovation I've described. But when you go in there, it is just chock full of mementos and memorabilia from Theodore Roosevelt. He was a very avid hunter, but also an avid conservationist. So you'll see lots of trophy heads on the wall. You'll see swords and paintings and, and carpets and rugs and all kinds of things and furniture. So uh, removing it was an incredible undertaking by the government. The, uh, I think the entire budget for the, uh, for the whole project, you know, removing everything and doing the rehabilitation or, or the renovation, as I described earlier, uh, came to about $7.2 million. Because it's very rarely ever emptied like this, they wanted that documented because, for starters, the house in its empty or near vacant condition is never going to be seen by the public because they have to close it off so that they can do the work uh, in, in updating it. Probably the last time it was seen like that empty, I guess, was when the Roosevelt's moved in, mm. which is quite a while ago. Uh, I believe it might have been empty at some point in the 50s. Uh, right before they turned it over to the government. But basically, it's a very rare historical event to see it this way. So they wanted that documented and photographed, but not just in a clinical documentary kind of a way. Although there are some photos where, you know, my intention was to document what was there. But it was more to do something artistic, uh, which I thought was really great because uh, there is a long tradition within the Park Service photographers creating uh, works that only documented some of these locations, but did it in an artistic way. Probably the best known person is Ansel Adams, of course. So I thought that was really great that they uh, were sensitive to that. I, I give a lot of credit for that to the superintendent, the fellow who runs or, or ran at that time that I did the project, Sagamore Hill. It's a fellow named Tom Ross. So as you described, I was trying to not only capture what these rooms were like in this near vacant or vacant state, but to also try to reveal something about the nature of the occupants of this place. What I experienced when I walked through these rooms, and by the way, walking through these rooms is quite an experience because I'm walking through them without somebody guiding me on a tour. There's no velvet ropes. I'm not, you know, I can actually walk into the rooms so it's really something to experience a house of that size that way. But what I was trying to do was to um, show the character of, of the occupants. Because when I walked through these rooms, I noticed that even though they were empty or nearly empty, depending on what state of moving out they were in as far as the furnishings go. But I noticed that even when it was like that, you could still tell this is the room of the president or this is the room of his wife. Or you could see, um, you know, uh, indications that this was a, a room for children or servants. And so I thought that was really interesting that the house over a period of time, you know, just through use and, and the, the patina it develops and just the way it's decorated, even things like moldings and, and paint schemes and whatnot, that it still tells you something about the person who's in there. Yeah. So one of my concerns was, that's why I was so pleased that you, uh, you know, just kind of summed up what the project was, was, was about so eloquently. 
is when I took the pro- when I took on the project, I was concerned that people just might not get it. In fact, I remember for a while um, on another project that I did that I can talk about later if you wish, but a similar project, photographing an empty house. Uh, I had a hard time getting some publicity on it from the media. Uh, one editor in particular said to me, you know, for a long time I've been getting these press releases from you. And I kind of didn't pay too much attention to it because I figured, well, what's the big deal in photographing an empty house? What's there to see? And finally, I guess because I was persistent, she got curious enough and came down to uh, one of the exhibits that I had. And then when she saw it, everything snapped into focus for her. She goes, now I totally get it. It's just that it's a very difficult thing to convey in a press release. Mm. And at first blush, it's like, you know, yeah, what's there to see in an empty house? So it, it was quite the challenge. Yeah, because when I think of architectural photography, and I've, and I've done a little bit of it, I'm using the elements within the room, the, the couch, the tables, the, you know, all those little knickknacks that, that, that make up a room to not only help define the purpose of that room, but to build the composition. Right. And you didn't have the benefit of that. And what you were doing was using light as a way of being able to do to do that. Tell me if these images, was this all found light or were you bringing in light? Because when I look at it, it the, the light just makes me drool. I mean, I just go, God, if, <laughs> if I had that kind of light every time I walked out the door with a camera, I'd be in heaven. But I couldn't tell. To me, it looks like it's all available light. But tell me if that's the case or whether you were working with supplementary, supplementary lighting to, to create this mood and, and aesthetic. It was all photoshopped. Not <laughs> no. I'm glad you can drool about lighting. I mean, how many people are there going to drool over lighting? But yeah, I would say um, the vast majority of it was total natural lighting. Uh, there were some instances. In fact, I'm actually looking at my gallery pages so I can refresh my memory on some of these. There were a few here and there where I did use a little bit of, um, in some cases, just my flashlight, believe it or not. You know, just very little light just to pinpoint it on a spot to draw it out. Because, you see, like, there's one main room there called the North Room. It's this very grand, very impressive room where uh, Theodore Roosevelt would meet with dignitaries. And so it was designed to be impressive. The room is very dark, though, very dark paneling and uh, very high ceilings. So when you go in there, there are not that many windows. And because the room itself is very dark, there's very dark wood, it's kind of hard to see things. So in some of those cases, uh, I did add a little bit of light, with, literally with a flashlight, uh, sometimes with a flash. But for most of the photos, it's just the light that was there. You know, I just tried to, uh, when I went there, uh, I, I guess on the very first day, I didn't even really take any photos, quite frankly. I just walked around, uh, really kind of felt the room, and actually took notes about what the light was like in certain times of the day, uh, especially that time of year. It was February. It was, it was the month of February when I took it, so it wasn't like the summer or the spring with lots of light, so that made it a challenge as well. Also, the nature of the, of the color of the light is different. It tends to be a little bluer. But you'll see, for instance, on one of the pages of my gallery, uh, there's a, a photo I took from uh, the master bedroom, and I took it just as the sun was setting. And that sun just kind of filled that whole room with just this beautiful warmth. I mean, the, the room was kind of yellowish anyway in paint as far as the paint went. But when that light came in, it just kind of just kind of lit it up. Uh, I'm very influenced by painters, especially because I began as a painter before I went to photography. So in some cases, there are photos where I don't know if I did it consciously or not, but I kind of saw almost the way light was used by Vermeer, for those who are familiar with that artist. Yeah. So there's one partic- 
particular photo I'm looking at right now. But I think, you know, natural light at the end of the day, it just looks the best to my eyes anyway, you know? Yeah. What, what I love about uh, so many of the photographs is that it was your willingness to use shadow mm-hmm. to obscure cer- certain details. Because sometimes, you know, people just want to wash a scene with light to reveal everything. Right. Not realizing that you can use shadow to emphasize that part of the scene that's illuminated in light. There's this one shot that I don't see in the gallery here, but that was mentioned in one of the videos, which mm-hmm. was the, a bathroom that Teddy Roosevelt uh, had where he had a had a shower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in the foreground, it's all in this sort of deep black shadow. And, and, and you're forced into the shot, into where the tub is and where the shower was. And I look at that shot and I go, and I go, that's not only a, a, a great shot. But I also had to commend, you know, the people who had hired you to allow you to actually create images where you use shadow, deep shadow, where where things were going to be uh, obscured in that way. Because, I, you know, in other hands, I could imagine someone saying, well, you need light there. It's too dark. You, you can't see this and, and see that. And the fact that you were you were given that kind of liberty, uh, I think, is fantastic. You know, when you got this gig and you had this vision for how you how you wanted to, to photograph it, tell me about the dialogue you had with you know with the curators and the people involved in terms of <laughs> how you how you were envisioning it mm-hmm. and what they may have been expecting. Right. Well, first of all, let me just say it's good not to fear the shadow. You know, I think sometimes folks get very hung up about shadow. I even see lots of discussions in different uh, you know online boards about making sure this detail in the shadow. And I totally get that and using, you know, uh, flash fill or reflector to fill. But I think also uh, part of, see, I I like to really focus on compositions more than anything else, which is probably why I consider myself more of an artist and photographer. So to me, it's about, um, you don't have to show everything. Sometimes if you shroud something in some darkness, it does create a sense of mystery and interest. It makes you want to look at the picture a little bit more. You know, also, it depends on the subject, of course. So that might not be appropriate for every subject. Uh, I do have lots of photos. You know, I do some portrait work for musicians and models. And even those oftentimes are done with a lot of shadow. But I, I think it's something for folks to consider. You know, I, I think shadowing is good. These are things that I did talk to the park about because I wanted them to make sure they were not getting photos that might be the type that might be more commonly seen. And I wanted to avoid doing something that was common because, again, photography is so ubiquitous. There are photos everywhere. If if you do a a Google search for Sagamore Hill, you're going to see lots of photos. I mean, not a whole lot, but you're going to see photos from the interiors. I I didn't want to reproduce that. It's been done already. So why not do something different? And why not stretch and, and try something that's more of a challenge? I mean, the only other significant body of photographs of the interiors of this particular house uh, was done by a fellow named Samuel Gottschow back in the 60s. Uh, they were all black and white, for starters, and it was also done with the house fully furnished. Uh, they're now in the Library of Congress. But, you know, everything can be cle- can be seen very clearly. So I wanted to avoid reproducing that. What helped me was, as I mentioned earlier, I had done a previous project, also a commission through the National Park Service, for another uh, historical house in Connecticut. The park is called Weir Farm, National Historic Site, and it's the homestead of a very famous American artist named Julian Alden Weir. Uh, Julian Alden Weir is one of the founders of American Impressionism. His uh, paintings are at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Smithsonian, uh, you know, many other major museums like that. 
And so that particular house, as well as his painting studio, was also being emptied, also going undergoing renovation. And this being an artistic park by nature of the person they represent, Julian Alden Weir, you know, they were very hip to a lot of the ideas that I had about how I was going to interpret the house. So that was my first big project. Word got around through the National Park Service. Those photos were exhibited at Brigham Young University at a big gallery they had there. It was exhibited by uh, Senator Joe Lieberman. He was one of the sponsors, one of the uh, co-sponsors of the bill that created this park uh, many years ago. Um, so, you know, it kind of got around when uh, the, the folks at Sagamore Hill found out about that project, they at least had some work to base it on. They could see what I did. They could see what my eye was like. And so when I went in to meet with them, they already had a pretty good sense of what they might expect. And they, and they told me basically, you know, if you do for us what you did at Weir Farm, you know, then we're going to be happy. Nevertheless, because I'm not one to take chances, I still brought some uh, photos with me. In fact, I actually brought uh, a photo in a in a frame. I just brought the whole thing. How's that for a portfolio? You know? <laughs> so uh, I had my iPad with images, but I brought the entire frame because there's just nothing like seeing a, an actual print. In this case, it was 17 inches by 25 inches, you know, with a nice mat and a nice, you know, black metal gallery frame. And so that kind of helps get it across. And, you know, we did a tour. They actually took me for uh, a tour through this uh, nearly vacant at that time uh, mansion and kind of explained to me, you know, what there was. I had seen the house when it was furnished maybe 10 years earlier. And as, as we're going through this little tour, you know, I'm, I'm very expressive. So I'm like commenting along the way, like, wow, that's beautiful. I got to take a picture of that. And I would do it this way and that way. And, and so it, it was that kind of a dialogue. So uh, I thought they were very open to it. I give them a lot of credit for giving me total artistic freedom. I mean, nobody, absolutely nobody followed me around, questioned what I was doing. Uh, they didn't get intimidated when I brought in, you know, my computer and my tripod and all that. Because you have to be real careful in there. You know, everything is, uh, you're basically working in a museum. So you have to make sure that if I pick up the tripod, I'm not crashing it into some stained glass. That'd be wonderful if that happened, you know? Yeah. Well, you, you established a thing that's just so important between a photographer and anyone they're working with is, is trust. Absolutely. You know, if, they, if, if, they, if they feel they can trust you, they give you the, the liberty and, and the clearance to be able to do what you do because they know that they can entrust you with, with the space, with the environment, with the people, and that you're going to do not only a good job, but do an exceptional job if they just keep their hands off. Well, I was very humbled by that because, uh, you know, over the years, it doesn't happen as much now, but over the years, uh, sometimes things would disappear, you know, during a tour you know, little items that one can just pick up and put in their pocket. So they're very careful about that. And, you know, again, most of the stuff was uh, already gone or on its way out. But if I wanted to take something or destroy something, I mean, there was nobody to stop me. So that's a great deal of trust. And uh, I have, uh, I'm very humbled by that because, um, again, that I know they're not likely to do that for just anybody. But it does go back to that trust. And it goes back to the communication, just talking through everything so there's no surprises. They kind of know how I work and, and what I need to do. I mean, at one point, I mean, these are government employees, so they got set hours. But, uh, you know, one of the women there who was looking after the, the house was kind enough because she knew I was trying to get the best job done as possible. She was kind enough to come in extra early to open up the place for me and to stay extra late. So I had a little more time to pack up and not be in a rush. And that really meant a lot to me that she mm. actually um, put in this extra time, you know, just to help me out. Yeah. 
before you became a photographer, you you were, had a career in the music, right? And it was interesting to read that you started. You picked up the camera to pick up to document like your, your music, exactly what you were doing with your music. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you took on photography as a, as a serious deal. Why the transition? Because it seems like you were you were enjoying what you were doing with with music and achieving some good <laughs> success with it. What what happened? All right, let's see if I can explain that without telling a long, long story. <laughs> um, there were a couple of things that kind of converged that pushed me into the into the path that I'm on right now. For starters, in the music industry, let me take a step back. I began as a musician, so that, that was I probably spent more time as a musician than anything else. Uh, so, you know, I've done shows, I performed at coffee houses and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I was an entertainment lawyer. So I was uh, representing other creative people as a lawyer to help them, you know, protect their rights and not be taken advantage of. Mostly musicians, but really all kinds of creative people, filmmakers, models, uh, script writers, people involved in theater, that sort of thing. Uh, and then at one point, I was also managing an artist. I was managing a uh, Latin freestyle artist on Columbia Records named Lisa Lisa. Some of you may not even know who I'm talking about, but it depends on your age. But, uh, you know, I represented uh, recording artists. I was very hands-on that way. That was when I was thinking about getting a camera to document what was happening behind the scenes, you know, at these shows and, and that sort of thing. And then when I was performing uh, my own shows, I was also looking to document that because people would take pictures for me and then I have to chase them down to get the pictures. And in many cases, I'd never see them again. So that just got to be very frustrating. I guess the big turning point was two things. For starters, you know, people started downloading music illegally, Napster. And that kind of affected the music industry where it became a lot more difficult to make money, you know, representing people. Secondly, uh, the band that I was representing, the band that I was that I had doing these shows, that became frustrating, too, because a band is a collaborative effort. And so what happens is you can only progress as far as the weakest member. And I always had high aspirations. At one point, we actually had um, one of my songs was in the top 40 of American Idol Underground. When American Idol first began, they had an internet version of the show. And so for one particular week, uh, people who were listening just kept voting for that particular song without any promotion on my part. And it reached the top 40. I forget the number. It was like 36 or something like that. So we definitely had potential. But band members were just not trustworthy. They wouldn't show up. They changed their minds, you know, that kind of thing. The final thing <laughs> was I had cancer. This is maybe about 10 years ago. So uh, thankfully, it was caught early. I survived it. You know, I was just going through uh, some surgery. The key thing is that it was caught early enough. And I was young enough where I can overcome, uh, you know, just go through the recovery. But what that did, and I know this sounds a little bit like a cliche because lots of people say this when they go through something like that. But when you go through that, you start to reevaluate what's going on. You say, okay, you know, I got through this thing. I have another shot at life. What can I do different? What can I do better? And I was a little depressed at the time because of the way things were going with the music industry, the way things were going with this band that was just totally unreliable, with the exception of maybe a couple of people who were pretty dependable. And so what I did uh, was we had a family trip out to Arches National Park out in Utah. And for a couple of days there, it was just great. I was just kind of wandering uh, this beautiful park. I had a little point and shoot camera and I was just uh, taking pictures. And when I showed them to family members and friends and, and others, people really responded very genuinely. I don't think they were just trying to make me feel good, but they genuinely loved the pictures. And it was just a little point and shoot camera. It was no fancy, fan, uh, fancy thing. And what I really liked about it was that I was able to bring something to completion. I didn't have to rely on collaborators. I didn't even have to have one person hold the camera for me and another person press the shutter and one person focus. You know, I do it all myself and it gets done. And if I want to stay up all night to get everything done. 
I can do that too. I don't have to check with anybody or kick someone around to the pee on their game. So that's when I started thinking, well, you know what? Maybe this is a direction I should go in because it's a way for me to express myself creatively without being held back by anybody. And so what I did was I started experimenting. Um, the band started falling away and I kept on playing coffee houses as a solo artist. Sometimes I'd have one or two people accompany me. And we started taking, uh, we, we started, you know, selling my CDs at the shows, but I also set up a little exhibit of these photos that I took at Arches National Park. And what I thought was incredible was that more people were reacting and buying the photos than they were my CD. <laughs> now, of course, I wasn't sure if I was that happy that my music wasn't connecting with them as much, but, uh, you know, the photos were selling. People really loved them, and, uh, and I, I was not expecting that at all. I was just using it as a little little exhibit, just like an extra value-added thing for my for coming to my show. So eventually I started moving more in that direction. And the final thing was, after drifting around for a while with photography, trying to figure out you know, how to make it into something of substance, the key thing was I ended up getting an artist in residence at Weir Farm National Historic Site, that park that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I had never heard about that park, but I subscribed to a email list from the AAA. American Automobile Association, and they suggested Weir Farm National Historic Site as a place one might want to visit one weekend if you live in New York, because it's only about an hour away. I had never heard about it, which was surprising since I have a background, I have a background as a painter, and so it intrigued me. And finally, one day in the summer, we went, my wife and I, and when I went on the Ranger-led tour, the Ranger mentioned this thing called an artist residence program, which I'd never heard about in my life. And for those of you who never heard of it either. It's basically a program you apply to, you know, with your uh, visual work. Usually it's visual, but they have them for music and for writing. It gets reviewed by a panel of experts. Usually it's someone from a museum or someone from the park, but uh, people who are uh, authoritative in the arts. And then they make selections. In the case of Weir Farm, they pick one person for each month of the year to spend a month living in the park, living in, in their case, a historical cottage with a state-of-the-art studio. You live there for free. They don't pay you anything, but you have full run of the place for nothing. And you're allowed to create as you wish freely. Wow. And then they, yeah, and then they even set you up with an exhibit after that too. So I applied not thinking I was going to get in because I didn't think I had the credentials for it. I didn't have much of a portfolio at that time. But somehow someone or someone's just uh, saw something in my work. They invited me. And in 2011, I did the artist in residence for a month. And that's what started my relationship with that particular park, which led to the commission I described earlier of, of uh, Julian Alden Weir's farmhouse and studio. And that in turn led me to Sagamore Hill as well as, you know, other projects. So It's so funny how things can start. Absolutely. I never would have thought it if someone had asked me about it years earlier. It just would, it would have been unimaginable. You know, you can't even plan for something like that. Now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. One of the things that I hated about my first website was how much of a headache it was just to make changes. Whether it was adding a new gallery or reorganizing elements on, on a page, I don't have that problem now. Since I've switched my photography and this podcast website to Squarespace, I don't feel that dread of all those lost hours I'm gonna lose trying to make a simple change. I'm regularly adding new content, 
uploading images, adding video, and making small subtle changes to improve the look and feel of my web presence. Squarespace's gallery blocks are a big part of that, and they can be added anywhere on your site to include not only text and photography, but also slideshows, videos, and so much more. You really need to check it out for yourself. To start a free trial, no credit card is required. Just start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME1 and get 10% off to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. What did your career in, in the music industry provide you that has helped you to, to leverage those opportunities that you've gained as a as a photographer? Well, the main thing I think is uh, organization and trying to reverse engineer how the people you're doing business with think. Uh, in the 25, 27 years I spent as an entertainment lawyer as an, and as an artist manager, I represented, you know, people just starting out to people in the middle, to people who are, you know, public figures, celebrities. And I was always amazed at how little they knew about business, you know, just didn't have a, I mean, there are always exceptions, but for the most part, really didn't have any concept of what business was like and how to conduct themselves with other people. Many of them were just kind of living this fantasy life. You know, they, they had this persona that made very interesting copy in a newspaper or a magazine or online, but it's not something you want to do with a business person. So, um, which is why I got into artist management because there was a need for that in representing myself i'm my own client now and i actually follow my own advice which is really good i don't have to fight with myself on that and so what helps me as far as uh, trying to get these commissions and uh, trying to get the exhibits is that i'm able to think through from a business point of view what the other party needs to make things happen you know uh, too many times the artist i think will focus on what's good for them and what they can get out of the exhibit or the commission and we all know that already, but you know, what are they getting in return? That's all they care about because they're the ones who are going to be paying for the commission or, or at least offering you the access and the opportunity. As much as I love photography and I try to spend as much time I can with it, I spend a great deal of time actually writing, you know, writing proposals and trying to think through every single thing that needs to happen for an exhibit to be successful, uh, writing press releases and not even generic ones. I don't write one per press release that is sent to everybody. I tailor them and I try to, you know, target them to the particular magazine or, or publication that I'm trying to reach. It's a lot of work keeping the website updated. So people go there. The information is up to date. There's a lot of administrative things that may not be pleasant. It's not as fun as taking a photograph. But if one wants to get their vision out to the public, it really has to happen because there's just way too much competition, as I mentioned earlier, with just the way uh, photography has gone. So it really requires a lot more to stand out from the pack. So I think that's one, probably a great experience I've had over time that's really been practical for me right now. That's great. Well, you know, that point that you make about having an understanding of what, you know, the exhibitors, the curators, what your clients, what they need is is something that a lot of people don't really think about. Uh, we're all very self-obsessive, mm -hmm. you know, so it's always about me, 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 me. But I think that, that the more, the, the kind of photographers or artists that people really like to work with are people who simply 
you know, get outside of that little box that they're frequently focused on and start thinking about how can what I do help someone else achieve something that, that they want in terms of their, whether they're working in a magazine, whether they're, you know, have a gallery space that they want to have exhibited, regardless of what that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really about thinking about how can I help how can I help you? Right. That allows people to really be successful. And as simple as it is, it's amazing how many people don't know it and don't practice that. Right. And I think sometimes folks might, they might inadvertently assume that because the person is a curator, you know, or the executive director of a historical society or of a museum, that they know everything. So they kind of become passive and just kind of assume they're going to do all the thinking and figure it out for you. But the fact of the matter is that they don't necessarily know all the answers either. You know, they're, they're always trying to do things better and try to stay relevant to the way society is moving technologically. So sometimes you have to think outside the box. I hate to use that cliche, but you got to think a little differently and make suggestions to them on, um, you know, how your exhibit or how your presentation can be different, how it can be relevant how it can reach out to groups of people that may not traditionally visit that particular museum. And it doesn't mean they're going to adopt all your ideas, but if you give them six ideas and they adopt one, well, they're going to remember you for that. And even if they adopt none of them, it just uh, you leave them with the impression that you're not passive in this process, that you are active, that you're trying to help them out. And that also goes back to what we talked earlier about building that trust. They know, all right, this fellow is looking out for us. And so this is someone we can give free reign to. I won't say who, what the museum is, uh, but I recently did an exhibit at a New York City museum, and uh, they were in between hiring a publicist. So they didn't have anybody yet, uh, and I wanted to really promote the exhibit that I had with them. So we worked it out, or, or they actually suggested it on their own. It wasn't even my idea. But they just gave me access, administrative access to their Facebook page, and they just let me post whatever I want. You know, so I could have posted on there. See, Mauro is the greatest photographer since Ansel Adams. You know, I could have done that if I wanted to. And of course, I didn't. You know, I put things that were informative and, and would draw people to the exhibit. But I didn't take advantage of it. But I was also very humbled by that. that they trusted me to do that. They didn't even ask me to run it by them before I posted it. So I think that's a great relationship if one can can build that with a, with an organization. It just Again, it's a win-win. They were able to get some publicity while they were looking for someone to do it for them. Yeah. You had two recent exhibits. One was with the, uh, the William Floyd's House of the Revolution, and you have another mm-hmm. one that I think is opening this, this month. Right. Uh, tell us about both of them, and tell us about, you know, along the lines of what we've just been talking about, how you communicated with them, how did you create this opportunity for you to have your work exhibited there, because I know a lot of people are have an interest in getting their work exhibited in a particular space. Right. So if you can share what you did and what you found was most effective in, in being able to make it happen. Okay. Uh, I would love to answer that question because that was uh, a really interesting experience, the way that unfolded. Uh, by way of background, William Floyd is a, is a little known founding father of the country. But his name is indeed on the Declaration of Independence. He served with George Washington. He counted as friends people like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson who visited his house, which is called Old Mastic House. And this is a historical house also on Long Island. It's part of the Fire Island National Seashore, which is part of the National Park Service. And again, it's just like a chain reaction. Those folks saw the work I did for Sagamore Hill. They saw the work I did for Weir Farm. And so they wanted uh, their house documented as well. 
their house was not empty. So that was kind of a nice project to actually photograph a place that had stuff in it, you know. But uh, my goal was to, uh, again, create another artistic body of work that would hopefully uh, make more people aware of this place and hopefully even encourage them to actually visit it, which is the ideal thing. Again, kind of like what Ansel Adams did when he took photos out west of um, Yosemite and Grand Canyon before lots of people in the East really knew about it. So um, what I did was when I knew or when I had a sense that I was probably going to get the commission, I started getting busy right away. I I didn't like wait for the date to arrive, start taking photographs. And then when I'm all done, start looking for an exhibit. I started looking for an exhibit right away. I I know that's kind of gutsy, but that's what I did. I started doing some research online. And then I found out about a museum in New York that has uh, a specialty of exhibiting work pertaining to the colonial period. Now, I wasn't sure if I was going to get in because it's a very old museum. And, uh, you know, so they've been around for a while. So I'm sure there's nothing I could do that can really impress them. And also a lot of the work that they had was more like uh, artifacts from the Revolutionary War period. So you can go there and actually see documents signed by George Washington, paintings, furnishings, things like that. So I wasn't sure if they would be open to exhibiting, you know, contemporary digital photography. But I figured, what have I got to lose? So I did my research, uh, you know, I checked out the personnel on LinkedIn. Um, I read newspaper articles about them. I went into YouTube. There were some videos there. So I try to get as much information about them as I can so I can get a sense of what their aesthetic was, what things would interest them. And then I just bit the bullet and took a chance. I wrote them an email and I sent it to the uh, director. And I just said to her, I said, look, I am going to be photographing, you know, this particular house, William Floyd. Uh, the project's not going to start for another six months, so I don't have a single photo to show you, but I'm asking for an exhibit. And I would love for the exhibit to start on July 4th, Independence Day. <laughs> can't think of anything more appropriate than that. Uh, however, I can show you some work that I've done before. So I did do this project for President Theodore Roosevelt's house, Sagamore Hill, you know, Weir Farm National Historic Site. You can visit my website. You can see all my other photography, you know, the stuff I've done with musicians and models and, and things like that. Uh, you know, I can show you my resume. I saw, you know, I mentioned, I think at that time I had gotten a, a pretty nice article in the New York Times uh, about one of my exhibits. So I had that to show at least. And, and also I do, I've done videos also for some of the exhibits I've done. I'll do like uh, interviews with the curators and, and, and that sort of thing. So I had some content to give her to show her that even though it's pretty insane to ask for an exhibit when I haven't even started the project and I have no photos to show her, I wanted to show her that I did have some body of work and therefore there's some credibility and some reliability to what I'm asking for. Mm-hmm. And I figured the worst that can happen is she ignores me or it doesn't get back to me. And as a matter of fact, it took quite a while for me to hear back from her. Uh, unbeknownst to me, this particular museum was suffering or, or trying to recover from the ravages of Hurricane Sandy. So they had very intermittent email or or internet access. Uh, Their phones weren't always working. So I wasn't sure they were blowing me off or what was going on. But finally, because I'm very persistent and I just keep on, you know, contacting them with emails and follow-ups. Finally, she contacted me. She was, you know, apologetic because of the um, Hurricane Sandy uh, issues they were dealing with. But she said she was interested and uh, we, t- you know, we talked some more through email. I think we might have had a phone conversation. And sure enough, you know, she said, I, I, I want to do this thing. 
And I told her, well, that's great. As soon as I start the project in six months, as soon as I have some photos, I'll show you them. This way, you know, I have something. <laughs> and so, uh, so sometimes you can do that. You know, if you kind of know you're starting something or even if you have something in mind, let's say, let's say you're not someone who's getting commissioned, but you like doing street photography, let's just say, and you want to focus on, I don't know, whatever it is. Prostitution. I don't know why I thought of that. Prostitution, um, whatever it might be. If you want to do something on that, you might want to do some research and say, well, where else have photos like this been exhibited? Has anyone done it before? If they haven't done it before, maybe it's a fit. Maybe there's a a museum that focuses on things pertaining to urban scenarios. In fact, I'll give you a better example. I'll give you a better example. There's some photos that I have from different collections that can, if you put them together, they form a theme, even though they're from different sources. And the themes are peaceful, but abstract. It might be a picture, for instance, of a water, of a fountain. You know, um, water is just kind of rippling in the fountain from a national park. And I have a particular photo that's close up. And if you look at it, it looks like an abstract painting, but it's actually water rippling. And it's also very pleasing to just kind of look at it. It almost kind of draws you in. So I actually put together a series of photos like that. And uh, because I found out about a museum that specializes on the topic of peace, you know, contemplative peace, but also world peace, themes like that. And so I put these photos together, put it together in the form of an ebook or a slideshow, you know, through a PDF. And I just sent it to them. And again, I asked for an exhibit. I said, I think I have something that might fit in with the themes that you're trying to uh, touch on. And it took a while. It took about a year. Uh, but just recently, about a week ago, I think it was, yeah, about a week ago, they finally got back to me and they said they're very much interested in doing it. And, uh, you know, we're going to move forward and try to put an exhibit together this year or probably this year. That's awesome. It's amazing what happens when you just ask. You have to ask. You have to be prepared, though. You got to do your research so you know what's of interest to them. You got to be persistent and consistent, just not annoying. But you got to stick with it because people are very, very busy. They get tons of email. And that's why it's really important to get your ideas across succinctly and clearly. And a lot of time has to be spent on the writing. I mean, there are folks who, uh, you know, who know about what I do. And sometimes they're amazed at how much time I spend writing an email. Say, how can it take so long? It's just an email. You're not writing a book. And they go, yeah, but. I want this email to be impactful. I want them to open it and I want them to respond to it. And so I'm going to carefully choose each word. I'm going to try to get it down as short as I can. I'm not always successful, but I don't just shoot out emails with misspellings and all that sort of thing. I mean, I really spend some time with it. It's time consuming. And sometimes I feel funny about it. It's like, well, maybe I'm better spending the time doing some photography, but you know what? If it gets me the result that I'm seeking, that it's worth the investment. Yeah. And by doing it also, it helps kind of reinforce in my mind how to explain what I'm doing too. Because although a lot of it is email driven, sooner or later there's going to be a conversation in person. And I have to be able to answer the questions and think on my feet and be able to articulate what I'm doing. Great advice. Great advice. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Yes. All right. Um, the person I'm going to recommend, uh, unfortunately, is no longer alive. He passed away a couple of years ago, I guess, which is about the time when I first found out about him. His first name is Miroslav. 
I think it's M-I-R-O-S-L-A-V, Miroslav Tiki, T-I-C-H-Y. Some of you may know about him. Uh, if not, just check him out online. Uh, I love this fellow. Not so much for his photography, although I think his photos are really interesting. They're very ethereal and very atmospheric. But this is a fellow who uh, um, lived under a communist regime. If I remember correctly, I think it was Czechoslovakia. And so he, you know, his freedom to express himself was obviously under the thumb of the dictatorship there. He didn't have a whole lot of money either, but nothing would stop him from getting his vision across. And, you know, here in America, sometimes we talk about whether the lenses are clear enough and, you know, what's the size of your sensor and all this sort of thing. This fellow literally made cameras out of toilet paper tubes, you know, and, and, and he would make the lenses out of pieces of plastic that he would painstakingly polish. And the photos, uh, you know, they're not crystal clear. They're kind of blurry, but kind of in a mysterious way. And I just thought it was just incredible, just just the tenacity of the human spirit to be able to express themselves and not let anything stop them. And so that's what I really liked about this fellow, Miroslav Tiki. In fact, uh, International Center of Photography had a pretty big exhibit on him, I guess about two years ago. So there might be some information online about it. But if you Google that, you'll see his photos. They're mostly of women. They were uh, just from the neighborhood. They were taken surreptitiously. So it's a type of street photography. You also see pictures of his cameras that he made. They're all like just paper and cardboard, like with chewing gum sticking it all together. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty crazy looking himself too. Wow. That's an an exciting recommendation. I'm looking forward to finding out more about him. But uh, where can people go to find out more about your pictures and all the work that you do? Best place to do it. Best thing to do is go to my website. I mean, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all those things, but my website is www.ciomaro.com. And Ciomaro is X, uh, the letter X in Spanish. Sometimes it's pronounced like an S. So it's X I O M like Mary, A R O. If you go to ciomaro.com, you can see all the galleries we talked about today. Uh, there's a free ebook that people can also download of uh, whatever exhibit I'm doing at the time. And if folks have questions, uh, they want to just connect with me and just develop a relationship. I mean, I'm all for that. They can just email me through the website. Uh, I love talking about this sort of thing. So I'm, I'm always looking to make other friends and exchange ideas. So I'm pretty approachable, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and, and sharing the stories behind your work. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mary Next. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.